You're listening to the CXMH Podcast. CXMH is a podcast at the intersection of faith and mental health. Hey, welcome back to the show. My name is Robert Vore. I'm one of your hosts, and I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Dr. Holly Oxhandler. Holly, how are you this week? Hey, Robert. I'm doing really well. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Yeah, it's uh, summertime. I think, you know, we were just talking a little bit about it, but it's kind of officially summertime. I know for Mm -hmm. a handful of weeks, we've been talking about kind of the transition and whatnot. But uh, this week was kind of the first week of seeing what summer would look like for us, you know, here in Georgia. It is, you know, the highs have been kind of 90 something degrees this whole week. So very much summer. So uh, we were just a, a couple hours ago, we were outside at a park and uh, very quickly decided, oh, let's do something else. This is, you know, it, we timed it poorly. So we were out right when it was very hot and we thought, well, we'll find something else to do. But yeah. it uh, feels a lot like summer, at least here. Yeah, no, it's the same here. I mean, it's it's like almost 90 degrees right now out here in, in Texas too. So it's did summer. Well, when I say summer is here in Texas, that's usually when we start seeing like the hundreds like every day, mm-hmm. but um, but it seems like we're getting pretty close. So yeah. yeah, it's definitely summer is here. So Well, how was your trip? I know last week on the intro, we talked that you were kind of getting ready for a trip and you were going to listen to that episode on the trip, actually. Which I did, by how the way. Was, how was your travel? <laughs> It was really good. Um, yeah, it was a quick trip up to DC to meet with some folks at um, the Council on Social Work Education. So I was there on Monday and Tuesday, and um, on the, I mean, the, the trip was great. I, you know, had a great time, and it was great getting to catch up with some colleagues and meet some new folks. But um, on the drive, I had flown out of DFW, which is like about a two-hour drive north of Waco. And um, on the drive back, I, I did listen to the episode and it was so good. I loved it. I really, I felt terrible. Like, I mean, I'm trying to release that shame. I know we talked about that on the last episode too, but, you know, I really wish that I, I could have been there, but you did such a good job and, um, and I learned a lot and that yeah, was a really good episode. So yeah. yeah, but yeah, it was a good trip and, and I'm happy to be home. Um, yeah. Yeah. So so it's been good. What about you? How, like, how's everything been going for you lately? Good. I mean, I know, I think when we recorded the last intro, mm-hmm. Brooke was gone. And so it was just Gray and I for that week. And so since then, obviously, she's been back. And like I mentioned, you know, this, this week has been kind of our first week figuring out what summer looks like. And so that's been good kind of having uh being on the other side of a lot of kind of the end of school year things, end of semester things, yeah. in terms of like college ministry things that Brooke does. And then, you know, my schedule doesn't change too much, but just having less for for all of us, kind of less things happening at various times. Um, and then obviously we knew kind of leading up that she was going to be gone for that week. So we're kind of on the other side of all that. And That's I had awesome. finished up right the week before that a, a couple of big kind of projects that I had in the work. So one uh, website that I was I was making for uh, actually, we, mm-hmm. I can say it now, right? Dr. Michelle Pierce. Yes. An episode for us. So I was building a website for her and I finished that kind of that week before and this other curriculum kind of thing that I was doing. And so that's my part of that is finished. And so kind of all the all the things on my to-do list, there's like day-to-day things and then there's kind of bigger, you know, ongoing things. Mm-hmm. And 
I don't have any big ongoing things aside from, you know, the show each week, but yeah, you know, it's, it's a smaller to-do list. It feels like, so, um, you know, kind of figuring out how to rest with that, I guess. I was you know? going to say, how are you doing with that? Cause I know that, you know, that can be hard sometimes when, you know, it's like we, we, we want those seasons when we don't have the really big to-do list items and just to have a little bit of a break, but, but how are you feeling kind of in the midst of this right now? Uh, good. I mean, I definitely, uh, I'm not great at sitting still. Mm. And you know, uh, actually, I had a, a moment last week where so Brooke was gone, and so Gray would go to bed, you know, at eight o'clock or whatever. And there was an evening where you and I were going to record the intro. So it would have been actually the evening that we recorded, I guess, the last intro. Oh yeah. And there was like a, a gap in there with you know a little bit of time, and I thought, well, what do I do with this time? And so I pulled out my to do list, and I thought, well, I can't do any of this. There's nothing on here that I can do because it was all you know either work related or things like that. So. And I didn't have anything else to do. And I thought, well, I'll watch some TV, but nothing really looked like caught my eye. And I thought, I have no idea what to do. Like, <laughs> and so I kind of sat there for a bit and thought, Wes, I think this tells me something about myself that mm. I have like, no idea what to do with this time. And then eventually you and I got on the call and, and chatted for a while. But I, it was very kind of illuminating for me thinking, yeah. I have no clue what to do with this time. Yeah. Uh, you know, other than scroll through my phone, which that didn't sound good or, you know, so. Well, that's good. I mean, I think I, I would definitely commend you for that, like that self-awareness of, you know, I'm not just going to scroll through my phone or, you know, just, you know, just for you to like pause and actually think, well, what should I do with this time? And then recognize, you know, the, just how maybe uncomfortable it may have been in that moment. Or I don't yeah. know if uncomfortable is the word, if that's what you would use, but, but just that, yeah, just that trying to figure out what to do in that moment. Um, part mm-hmm. of me wants to be like, Brother, get back on Insight Timer and start doing some centering prayer sits. Or- <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Be okay with just sitting there. Yes. Um, but, you know, you choose what's best for you, and that's totally fine. And <laughs> <laughs> That's so funny. You're such yeah. a social worker, therapist. I mean, whatever. whatever. Well, I'm not going res- to give advice, but you know, whatever, whatever's best for you. Whatever's yeah, best for funny. you. Um, but I'll just nudge just a reminder that that app is available and, you know, anyways, yep. Yeah. (laughs) Well, Hey, today we are, so this intro obviously is new because we're chatting, but we're going to re-release, kind of recast, which I'm I'm still not sure if that's a word or not, but the first time we did one, I used that word. And so we're rolling with it uh, of the interview that we did uh, back in 2018, with Hillary McBride. Mm-hmm. And I'm interested to hear because I haven't listened to this episode since I edited it the first time, mm-hmm. to be honest. Yeah. And you weren't a co host of the show when we did this one. Right. So I'm, and you, I know, just went back and listened to it. So I'm interested to hear kind of your thoughts on it. Uh, I know we we picked it for a variety of reasons. We've referenced it a couple times recently for starters, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. so right. that would be good. But I'm interested to hear kind of your thoughts on it listening back through particularly, you know, kind of a, and it's not super old, but one that was over a year ago that we released it. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So first I'll say, I mean, I did listen to it again recently, just kind of thinking about releasing it this week, but I think this is like the third or fourth time maybe I've listened to this episode um, just over (laughs) the last year because it is such a good one. And so I'm excited for our listeners to get to hear it if they haven't heard this um, before. 
But I was thinking, especially with us going into the summer, you know, there are more opportunities. I I feel like for us to engage in various forms of body shaming and and not being comfortable in our own skin and in our bodies, and um, and so I thought that on the one hand that this episode would be good for that, but also for those who are parents or who are around kids more, we're going to be spending a lot more time with our kids moving into the summer and. And so for me, this was a, this a lot of what she talks about in this episode offers some good reminders of how, you know, of just just how to be a little bit more intentional in what I say around my kids and and how I utilize opportunities for them yeah. to think critically about you know media that they're uh, exposed to or you know shows or pictures or things like that and to to use those opportunities to talk with my kids specifically about that. I also, I mean, I love how much she talks about research in, (laughs) in this episode. So, um, so, you know, my researcher's heart is pretty excited and how, you know, she talks about her research and looking at, um, how mothers have the significant influence on their kids and, um, how young women feel about their bodies and how moms feel about their bodies and, you know, and how she was able to match up some of these responses, um, together. I thought that was really interesting. Um, But I think one of the things that's like my, uh, that's probably my, my biggest takeaway from this episode um, and our listeners will get to hear it um, in a moment, but she talks so much and so well about how we model imperfection with our kids Mm. and how we lean into, you know, when we make mistakes, how to, to, you know, how to come behind those mistakes and, um, and, uh, and to respond to them in a different way, how to lean into imperfection and show our kids how to navigate that. And there is a quote that I actually wrote down from this, um, where she says, there's, there's a pressure to be this version of you. That's not even human. She's talking about those of mm-hmm. us as, as parents that there's a pressure for us to be a version of you. That's not even human. And the whole point um, is that it's okay to make mistakes and it's how you respond to those mistakes that makes a difference, especially in thinking about our children or young people around us. Yeah. Um, but just realizing that we, you know, imp- like perfection is not, it's it's not reality. And so how we can model imperfection for our kids so that when they grow up, they know how to navigate that sense of imperfection. It's so mm-hmm. important because there is no perfect parenting. You know, it's it's how we own, as she mentions, it's how we own our mistakes and how we teach our kids to own their mistakes and be resilient and navigate that imperfection. It's just so, yeah. so important. So anyways. Yeah. I was, yeah, I don't know. I just I loved this episode, and and I also really like how she talks about the importance of speaking from scars and not from wounds, especially with mm. our kids. Yeah. Um, that you know we want our kids to hear our stories and what we've grown from and learned from, but to speak from those places of having experienced healing rather than in the midst of the pain um, so that they don't feel like they have to carry our pain and feelings for us. Um, yeah. Uh, it was just so good. So That is good. Yeah. Anyways. Well, I'm excited to listen back through it since I haven't listened to it since we first released it. So I'm excited to listen back. Even hearing you talk about it, I'm, I'm remembering parts of that conversation. Obviously, 
that I do have memories of, but yeah. even the specific quotes and things like that. I mean, I remember reading her book as well. So, and I know we talk about that in the episode, but yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. I, I actually, I mean, I know you know this, that we're going to be uh, traveling soon. And um, I'm, I'm, abs- I mean, I haven't, I flipped through her book a little bit, but I haven't read it cover to cover. It is definitely going in my bag for our summer trip this year. Yeah, it's so good. Yeah, I cannot wait to read it. Well, hey, as we transition into the episode, having just, li- or into the interview, I guess, I feel like I always say that, but as someone who, you know, you're obviously have just listened to this episode, the interview, and you're you're passionate about it, what would be kind of your hope for our listeners who are about to listen to this interview either again for the first time in maybe a year or maybe for the first time? Yeah, no, I, I mean, I'm just excited that our listeners are going to get to hear this, you know, as they shift into the summer months and um, as they, you know, maybe look at some of the the media out there and how to critically appraise it a little bit more and how to think through, you know, what are these, what are these media um, trying to communicate to me and, and Mm -hmm. being a little bit more mindful of that. And at the same time, um, I do hope that those who either have kids or, you know, are surrounded by little ones or college students or, um, you know, just that they can, Maybe take some of Hillary's talking points um, and apply those into their daily lives as they, you know, are with their kiddos this summer or or youth this summer, just to help those who are younger begin to think about this in a in a healthy way. So, um, so yeah. I'm really really excited that this is coming out again um, at this time of year. So yeah, well, I even think it's cool that it, it comes. I mean, I've mentioned that we've referenced it a couple times, but mm-hmm. our you know, the leading others episode we did, and then the narratives episode that we did recently, yes. right? Thinking about what what narrative am I getting from this media, right? Oh, I should look like this, and then okay, like can I acknowledge that and mm-hmm. recognize? Am I am I acting out of that? Is is that what I'm communicating to my kids? You know, oh, you should do this. Oh, I need to look like this to gain value, right? Right. So those things. I mean, a lot of that ties in really well with some of those ideas that we talked about in that. Yep. Um, and so, yep, yeah, I, think I totally agree. It's good timing. Yeah. We're, look at that. Whoever's in charge of this show. Doing great. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, enjoy this recast of our interview with Hillary McBride, and we will talk to you guys next week. Bye, y'all. Hey, welcome back to the show. I'm so excited today to be talking with Hillary McBride. Hillary is a PhD candidate at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, as well as a registered clinical counselor in private practice. Her clinical work includes complex and acute mental illness and supporting adults towards well-being with areas of clinical specialty focus in trauma, perinatal mental health, spirituality and mental health, women's relationships with their bodies, as well as quite an extensive bio here with your research and (laughs) awards and things like that. Hillary, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. I'm so happy to be chatting with you today. Yeah, I think this is true. I scrolled back through and I'm not 100% sure, but I'm like 99% sure that you may be our first international guest on the show. Oh my goodness. Wow. Um, what an honor. That's fantastic. Yeah. Uh, you're, and even to be among the select few, if I'm not the first, that feels feels like a, like a treat. So thank yeah, you. Absolutely. We, I should get some more in here. It's uh, yeah, probably right. a feeling yeah. on my part. <laughs> no. but, uh, so some people may also know you from uh, your work. I know that you've been 
the featured guest on a handful of podcasts, as well as recently now you're one of the permanent hosts of the Liturgist podcast. It's true, I know. How did that come about? Ah, man, we just formed a relationship over um, me working on a few episodes and doing some meditations, and then they just asked me uh, late this fall, um, end of 2017, and I'm not sure what the decision process was, but I felt really (laughs) honored to be included, and uh, yeah, it's it's been a blast so far. So I've been down in L.A., not that long ago, doing a bunch of recording and then heading oh. back down soon to do some more. And we do a little bit of remote work too. So we're making the international piece work yeah, just definitely. fine. Well, we had yeah. Science Mike back on one of the first few episodes actually of this podcast back when we started. So oh, yeah, friends of big fans of the liturgists and the, the yeah, work that absolutely. they're doing. You're also the author of a book that came out late last year. So a big, a big end of 2017 mm. for you. Uh, it was entitled yeah. Mothers, Daughters, and Body Image, Learning to Love Ourselves as We Are. Uh, can yes, you sir. tell us a little bit about, I mean, what brought you into the work that you do in clinical mm-hmm. work and things like that, as well as, you know, what, what led you to focus on that area and write that book and, and things yeah. like that? Yeah, yeah. That's, there is so much backstory, so I'm glad that you asked the question. I don't know what it's like for other authors, but for me, the journey to write that book was long. I often say that I was preparing for it for decades because it came on the heels of my recovery from disordered eating and my journey towards what it meant to be a whole person and to stay in my body and to be well mentally and physically and spiritually and to have healthy relationships. And I think it was a lot of fear that motivated me to do the research that I did because I kept coming back to this question and this fear that I had of what what happens if I have a daughter one day who hates her body, hates herself the way that I did. So as part of my master's research, um, I was well into my journey of recovery from disordered eating and decided to research what it's like to love your body as a woman in this world, because we know from the empirical evidence that between 85 and 90% of women are totally dissatisfied with their appearance, with their body, with their Mm. sense of self, that the numbers are so high that we're actually, a person is in the minority if they like themselves, if they like their body, when it comes to how women are socialized. And so I wanted to do research about what the opposite of that was, because we know a lot about why people hate their bodies, but we don't actually know a lot about what we can do to change that story and what it means to to be okay with who you are. So as part of my academic research, I looked at young women who loved their bodies and then did some adjunct research as well with their mothers to look at, did their moms have anything to do with that? And what about the intergenerational piece and how we pass messages from parents to children? And because not every woman is a mom, I wanted to write this book as well for us as women who don't have kids, but have been mothered and to think critically about the messages that we've been given and how those have shaped how we feel about our bodies. So after doing the research, there was this sense of urgency that I felt of wanting to share the messages with people so that it could help transform their lives. Because so often in academic research, what we do is we get all this information and then we publish it within academic journals that nobody has access to, <laughs> that stay kind of within the academic silos and don't get to the people who they could benefit most. So yeah. my whole purpose of writing this book was to take scientific research and make it accessible so that people felt like their their lives could benefit from from this work. 
Yeah, and I think even reading it, that's one of the things that struck me the most is there's so much academic research into it. So it's not just you know what somebody thinks about it, right. but it's yeah. it's interwoven so closely with mm. people's stories, not only your own story, although that's yeah. woven throughout, but then the stories of the women that you interviewed, both them and their yeah. moms, and and I think it makes it more accessible. Even that's you know, right. I'm not a mother, and I don't have a daughter, and you know, uh, <laughs> but even reading it as just a person in existence who, you know, there's so much of it that I feel resonated with me or parts that made me kind of rethink the way that I interact with not just women in my life, but just people in general or or the media or things like that, you know? So I think it's phenomenal for anybody, you know, I've already recommended it to a few friends. So. Wow. What an honor. Thank you so much. Yeah. So the, the long and the short of it really is that I, I've had so much suffering in my experience of being alive and with my body. And I want to live my life in such a way that I can shape the story that I can help people not hurt the way that I've hurt. And that I know that, that I can turn the the pain that I've been through into something beautiful in my own life and into other people's lives. And, and so that's, that's the backstory too. And I think of that as being, um, Whenever I tell the story, it feels like redemption. It feels like pain doesn't get the final word, that suffering doesn't get the final word, that beauty and growth and thriving and transformation does. Yeah. So that relates a lot to some of the themes mm. kind of throughout the book, right, of mm-hmm. people choosing to use what they've been through to help their daughters specifically in the book. But I mean, mm. just in general, to help people, the people that come after them to yeah. have a different experience than they've had, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Well, it it shapes our perspective differently than I think we normally feel about our lives. Normally when we're walking around in our lives, we're thinking about us and now and this moment and our future and all of the things that concern us. But we think about the intergenerational narrative that we come from people and we're going towards people and we're part of a collective that's on a journey that extends way beyond the sense of individuality that we have that maybe if we change one little piece, that that's enough to give the next generation, whether it's a child that we birth or a niece or a nephew or kids that we teach in school or whoever it is, if we can shape their lives to give them something better than we had, then I think that there's value and meaning in that. But sometimes we think about our lives from such such an individualistic perspective that we miss we miss the larger story, which is that we belong to each other. We belong to this collective story and we have a role in, in shifting the cultural climate through the things that we do or don't do. Yeah. So when you talk about shifting the cultural climate and things mm-hmm. like that, one of the mm-hmm. things that you touch on in the book, which I love because even in other areas, it's so, it's so easy for us to find a problem that we see and then point, try to point to one thing and blame it on right. that. Right. I do a lot right. of research in suicide prevention area stemming largely mm. from my own story. And it's right. so easy for people to say, well, it's because of bullying or it's because of right. you know, whatever point right. to one thing. And you talk about our tendency to blame just mothers or just yeah. the media or things like that. But you say that maybe that's not necessarily it's not as easy as that. No, no. And I think that feels good because then we can tackle something. And if we can point to something, then we can attribute blame to it, and then we can try to shape it, and then we feel good. Okay, I've reduced the risk for myself or somebody else. And to see the complexity of how things work together to impact our experience of suffering often leaves us feeling overwhelmed, like, oh, there's so many different pieces. 
And I think of the concept of epifinality and multifinality and how there are so many different reasons why people can end up with one form of suffering, like hmm. all of the different reasons that influence alcoholism. It could right. be childhood abuse. It could be genetic predisposition. It could be depression. It could be workplace stress. It could be all sorts of things. And those, all of those things contribute to alcoholism. Right. And then there's what we call multifinality, which is childhood abuse could end up resulting in all sorts of different problems, suicidality, depression, complex PTSD, alcoholism could be one of them. And there are these bi-directional influences where it seems like we can't ever say for sure that this one thing causes that one thing. Yeah. Because there's so much individual variability and epigenetic variability and con contextual variability. But what we can do is we can look at complexities and models of making sense of those complexities and then say, okay, is there a piece of this that I can have an influence on? And I'm not going to assume that I'm going to change all of it just because of this one piece and I'm not going to feel like all of the problems are solved. But if we can chip away at that one little piece and maybe it makes it better for the people who come after us to chip yeah. away at the other little pieces. Yeah. So why did you focus on the relationship between mothers and daughters? Mm, yeah. Well, when you start looking at eating disorder literature and body image literature, there's some pretty striking evidence to show that a mother's feelings about her body are more significant predictors of the child's feelings about their body than how the child felt about their body in the beginning anyway. Hmm. So it seems to be a very significant predictor, primarily between mothers and daughters, but also between mothers and sons, because mothers are most often at this stage in history and up until now, although we see some trends shifting, mothers are the primary caregivers. And so they're spending a lot of time with kids, giving them messages about bodies and about food and about self. And dads have an influence as well, but we just don't have as much research because dads aren't spending as much time with their kids. And mm. again, like I said, that we're seeing trends in that changing right. right now in history. But when I started looking at the research, it seemed like Mothers were a really significant influence, but in most of the studies that I found, the only influence that I could see documented was the negative influence. And I thought, there's got to be more than this. If moms are really that powerful, then they can be powerful in the other direction too, but we just don't have the research to show it. So I'm going to go out and look at that specific thing. So my research actually looked at two, well, really three different pieces. One was how do young women feel about their bodies? And when they love their bodies as they are, what happens there? How does that develop? And then a second set of interviews that I did was with moms of those daughters and how those moms felt about their bodies. And then I did an analysis between the two groups and looked at how the messages that the moms gave the kids actually translated or not. And what was fascinating is so often, and this back is backed up in some other research, I asked the daughters to answer this question, my body is, and I asked the moms separately without them even having talked to each other to answer the same question. And so often the moms and the daughters without even deciding together gave the exact same word answer mm. to that question. Yeah. So we know that even the language that we're using is shaped by the language that we hear. What was fascinating too is that, the, and this is probably the most striking piece about that research and why I really, really wanted to write this book, is that the moms in the book and the moms in my study didn't necessarily love their bodies. And so there isn't a death sentence that 
the daughters can love their bodies even if the moms don't. That there is something that can move your kids forward even if you're not perfect. And that's meant to be a message of hope because I think with all of the literature about parenting and moms feeling this guilt and perfectionistic mentality from other moms and from within themselves of I I want to be perfect for my kids and I don't want to mess them up and I I want to do attachment parenting and all sorts of stuff. I think that there's a lot of pressure to to be this version of you that's not really even human. And the whole point is it's okay to make mistakes. It's how you respond to those mistakes that makes the difference. And even yeah. if you even if you struggle, it doesn't mean that your kids are going to hurt the exact same way. Yeah. You, I think right there, you hit on something that I had jotted down in my notes. You were mm. talking about a woman named Anne and her daughter, Kelsey. And you, yeah. you said this, you said that Anne wasn't perfect in talking about bodies or sexuality, but she was good enough. And a few weeks yeah. ago, I had a conversation with a trauma-informed counselor named Andy Kolber, and we talked a lot about attachment. And yes. she talked a lot about it and then said, but the good news is that you just have to be good enough, right? It's yeah. like, you know, essentially over 50% of the time, pay attention to your kids or whatever it was, you know? Yeah, yeah. And I've, I've heard, there, like, we see that term actually come from Winnicott, who was an attachment therapist way back in the day, even before attachment theory was more popularized but by Bowlby. But Winnicott was the one who c- coined this term, the good enough parent. And the good enough parent we now see in terms of attachment research and literature is being 70 70% approximately 70% attunement. Mm. So that means it's okay if your kid is freaking out but you're in the shower and you just need to take that one extra second to rinse the conditioner out of your hair. <laughs> your kid is not going to be totally screwed up by the fact that you weren't with them making eye contact, soothing them, calming them right. down. <laughs> that kids and and babies and humans are resilient and we just need to be there most of the time doing the best that we can as often as we can but there is no version of being a parent that is healthy that helps your kids thrive where you're perfect because and this is what I tell clients all the time because then what are your kids going to do when they make mistakes if they've never seen anyone make a mistake what do they do when they make a mistake? You're giving them, you're gifting them this narrative of adulthood that says you have to be perfect. And actually what's more adaptive is if you teach your kids when you make a mistake, here's what you do differently. Yeah. You own it, you name it, you repair, you create closeness and you respond in a way that owns the mistake so that when they grow up, when they make mistakes with their kids, that they can do to their kids what you did to them, which is to take responsibility and to show to show their child that they're sorry, to yeah. own the mistake. So that kind of gets to this idea of truth-telling, right? You talk about mm-hmm. mothers being honest about their struggles and that yeah. kind of having a, a correlation with helping their daughters. But yeah. you also talk about speaking from scars and not from wounds. Right, right. And the idea with scars instead of wounds is that what you're doing is you have an, you ha- you're sharing a story when you have enough closure on it that you can give the wisdom away to your child without them feeling like they have to solve your problem for you. Because sometimes what happens is parents are trying to be honest and then they share the facts about the messy divorce with the kid and then they get so overwhelmed that the kid then feels like they have to do the emotional labor and be the parent's therapist. And that creates a a really unhealthy dynamic for a child where they don't have the space to feel their own pain and feel like they don't have to be the strong one in that moment. They have someone who can be the strong one for them. Mm. So sharing scars instead of 
wounds means that there's enough space and insight and distance from it, just enough that you know that you can tell the story. And if they ask questions that you're not going to get offended or re-wounded, that you're not going to pull the scab off and have this new open wound to deal with that the kid then feels like they have to take responsibility for. Right. It's kind of like for those of your listeners who are are therapists, like when we talk about self-disclosure, if you're telling a client a story because you're wanting to work your stuff out with them, not healthy. But if you're using a story of something you've been through as a way to illustrate transformation or humanness or growth or uh, a way to respond to something, then that kind of self-disclosure is okay. And again, there's a difference between the parent relationship and the therapist-client relationship. Right. But I think that, obviously, what we're trying to do when we make a self-disclosure is use our story in a way that that opens up possibility and illustrates humanness and gives someone a real flesh and blood example of movement and healing. So Mm -hmm. sharing your story is so important with your sharing it with your children, but again, in developmentally appropriate ways and in ways that help them feel like they don't have to take care of you, but they can understand things about the world that they wouldn't if you were pretending you never struggled. Yeah. So if we're if we're talking to uh, parents or mm-hmm. even just you know adult caretakers or people doing youth ministry or whatever it is, we can talk yeah. some about that side. But then you didn't write off the influence of media altogether or things like no. that, right? No. In fact, we have overwhelming evidence that media is influential. But I chose not to write a book about it because we've got so 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 much evidence that I didn't feel like I would be adding anything new. So I wrote little chapters about it, but (laughs) it is such a significant influence that it can't be ignored, but there are more influences that we have yet to explore. Yeah. So if we, for just a brief second, talk about some media influences, and I think, I don't know if you're the same as me, but I know that it's such a common reaction to say like, oh, media today is ruining everything, whatever, look at this, that I tend to have kind of the opposite reaction of like, no, it's fine, like, because that seems to be the easy, you know? So I think about my my wife and I are expecting our first son. uh, Oh, congratulations. Thank you. And so I often think about like, what is it that I'm going to, you know, I don't want to be the Mm. parent that says you can't read this or that because, you know, the overprotective kind. But there is something, I mean, you talk about a woman named Sherry and kind Mm. of her response to the things that her son sees or, Mm -hmm. you know, the father fast forwarding through certain scenes that objectify women and things like that. So can you talk some about how can we, I guess, influence the media that our children see without kind of being the the stereotypical, you know, no reading, no cable, no, you know what I mean? Right. Yeah. Well, while your kids' brains are developing, while we have young, influential brains, we want to be really careful about what's seen, especially since uh, at a certain point, kids, or up to a certain point, kids don't have the ability to do critical thinking. There's just this kind of blind acceptance. They take something in and it shapes the way that they understand themselves and the world. And so up until a certain point, you don't want to be, you want, you don't want to have your kids viewing certain kinds of images. But they're going to come across certain things as they grow older, particularly preteen and teen years. They're going to go to their friend's house and you don't know what their friend's going to have right. on the TV or what they're going to be seeing at school. And so you want to be having conversations about what kind of media they're seeing and what their friends are 
engaging with and what they're showing them and then actually have critical conversations with them like okay so you saw that let's let's talk about that what was it like for you what did you think what did you feel do you do you think that that's something that you know represents the world around you and how did you feel about your body and other people's bodies after seeing that image and right. sometimes we suggest doing something called co-viewing, which is sitting down with your children and watching what they're watching and having conversations about it with them. So noticing shows that they're watching and having questions with them about, you know, the visibility of certain ethnic minorities or the kinds of bodies that they see and the way bodies are sexualized. And so you can start that pretty young by asking your kids to think critically like, oh, I noticed that there's nobody on that show that looks like your friend Juan. Right. How come there's nobody on that show that looks like Juan? Oh, interesting. There's only white kids on that show. Huh. <laughs> That's really interesting. I wonder why why don't they have people who look like your friends? Okay, right. well, maybe they don't have people who look like your friends, but maybe then we need to know that the show doesn't tell the truth about what the world looks like. Mm. Or oh, that's really interesting that what do you, you know, look at the way that the girls style their hair. What do you think about your hair when you see that? And having questions for the kids that get them to think critically about the media that they're viewing. And you can't do that if you're using you're using the TV to babysit your kids. You can't do that if you just want to check out and you don't want to have hard conversations. And you also can't do that if you buy into the media yourself. And so it's mm. important to get educated and to read critical discourse and content, literary content, I think particularly feminist and critical theory content that helps you get educated about the way that media proliferates narratives about value and appearance and status and worth as a human. And then once you're educated, have some critical dialogue with your children about how they can learn to think critically about that. Yeah, so you talk a lot in the book about media literacy, mm -hmm. which is what you're talking about here, right? Where yeah. we're not assuming, and you even have a quote from an APA task force on the sexualization of girls, but we're not assuming that girls or kids or anything are quote-unquote empty vessels, which right. everything that they think comes from the media, but we're also not kind of writing off that influence and saying, oh, it's fine, whatever right. it goes, right? Kind of, you talked about talking about it and having conversations yeah. about all sorts of things. I mean, you even right there mentioned body image and racial makeup and things like mm -hmm. that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's, we don't want to communicate to people that they like, as you read in that quote, like we're just the products of the environment around us. We also have a way that we can meaningfully engage in the world, but that's not the only way that we exist. Cause I think a lot of us want to say like, Oh, advertising doesn't affect me. Well, <laughs> Maybe not consciously, but when we look at the real estate of our neuroanatomy, the amount of brain matter that's associated with conscious thought is actually a fraction of what exists in terms of our unconscious processes. And we have a whole cortex that's dedicated to taking in visual information, and that cortex is completely disconnected from our conscious thinking. So we've got so much happening to our brains by what we view, but we're not even aware of what we're viewing and how it's affecting us. So are we not affected? No, we just might not be aware of how affected we are. That being said, we can learn to be aware. We can learn to think critically and we can learn to understand the impact that media has on us so that we can start to choose what kinds of 
media we want to engage with based on how it makes us feel. So we've got pretty, pretty clear scientific evidence that shows us that when people look at, oh gosh, mainstream, mainstream media, things like magazines, although magazines aren't as popular now because we're seeing the rise of social media, but we see that overwhelming majority of people after looking at print media feel really crappy about their body when they're looking at advertisements in fashion magazines. That there is just this totally depressing feeling that comes on the heels of seeing images of people that will never look like how we look or will never look how they look. And, And they don't even look how they look because all of those images are edited anyway. Right. You actually referenced a study that I thought was really interesting where they showed uh, a group of, I think, just people, uh, Mm -hmm. music videos and TV commercials and things like that. And then they showed another group, nature TV and commercials. And then with the first group, they kind of split them in half. And one half they showed right after that, you know, a little clip about how the models were tweaked and edited to look that way. Mm -hmm. And the different satisf- the different reports of those groups and how satisfied they felt with their appearance yeah. uh, based on whether they saw that or not, or mm-hmm. saw the extra clip that explained it or not, I thought was pretty impactful of, you know, all they did was add a 30 second clip about, hey, this isn't real. And yeah. they reported feeling much better about themselves than they had yeah. if they just saw the commercials. So if you think about the role of a parent, maybe the parent is the one who steps in and does what that little educational video does. Their parent steps in and says, hey, you know, that's not real, right? And in doing that, you can buffer yourself and your kids against feeling that shame just from seeing images that they're going to see in the world anyway. And truthfully, when for people who aren't even parents, just for all of us, I think that that's an important way to view media. So when you're looking at images, noticing if you're feeling gross about yourself or if you feel more depressed or dissatisfied with your appearance. And when you see something that makes you feel that way, to engage in doing this self-reflective process and coaching yourself through to say, oh yeah, but they don't look like that anyway. Okay. And maybe I'm not a loser or a failure or ugly or not valuable if I don't look like that. Yeah. So we can coach ourselves through, we can do media literacy for ourselves, even if we don't have children. Yeah. Well, and that's kind of one of my next questions is, Mm. if I'm not a mom, and I don't have a daughter, which obviously is for me, but you know, we have, I would say a fair share of our audience that is in the mental health field, but also that's in the ministry field, or, you know, people that just want to listen and learn. You talked some about throughout this, reevaluating your own definition of beauty, in, including mm. the things that you first say to little girls when you see them. Yeah. You know, oh, you look so yeah. pretty, things like that. Yeah. Some of this obviously is, you know, if you're a parent, you can kind of co-view or things like that. But what about other people that have maybe not as much influence, but still influence on, you know, the little girls that you see or the little boys that you see or the youth group or, you know, what kind, right. of, what, what kind of impact do the rest of us have? Right. Yeah. Well, let's think critically about the thing that we say when we first see someone. So what is it that we focus on when we greet someone? Do we focus on their appearance or do we focus on how they make us feel? So there's a big difference between saying to someone like, oh, you look beautiful or oh, what a beautiful dress. Can you twirl or whoa, like nice, you know, nice mustache that you're growing 14 year old. I'm trying to think of like what you, what do you say to a boy, like a teen boy when you greet him? Yeah. But we tend to focus on appearance for women and not for men. And we tend to over-focus on 
feminine ideals of appearance when we greet little girls. Mm. So what I like to suggest is that when you when you see someone that you talk about how happy you are to see them and you ask them questions about their life and you share about yourself. So there's a big difference between saying, wow, you're so pretty, I love your dress, and saying, I'm so happy to see you. Mm. Wow, I feel so excited. I've been looking forward to seeing you all week. Can you tell me what's what happened this week? What do you, what's your favorite book? What, what are you reading these days? And man, are we ever really coached socially to just say something about appearance, especially when we don't know how to make conversation with somebody or little right. kids. Right. So with little, I was seeing a woman yesterday in therapy who brought her little baby in and I said, Oh, what a cutie. Oh, like what a beautiful little girl. And I remember thinking, is that wrong to say? Should I say that? What, right. <laughs> you know, <laughs> as long as we're just asking questions about what we're saying and we're trying to focus on things outside of appearance, it's okay. We're not going to ruin someone if we acknowledge appearance. Appearance is an important part of our existence, but we don't want to give the message that it's the only thing that matters and that a certain kind of appearance makes a person more valuable than another kind of appearance. Yeah. So I always encourage people to focus on the academic term is non-appearance domains. So any <laughs> side, I know it sounds so dry when we think about the academic terminology, but to think about anything beside appearance, like activity or intellect or interest or um, a self-disclosure like I feel this way when I see you and wow I like the colors of the dress that you're wearing what's your favorite color right now focusing on anything besides reinforcing appearance ideals yeah and you know what honestly we just fall into these grooves socially where we say the thing that everyone said to us and that we've practiced saying and so sometimes the best way to think about trying to do something different is just to have a few key phrases in your head or in your back pocket that you can pull out when you need to so you don't have to wonder, oh, what should I say? What should I say? I'm going to say the wrong thing. How about you just say, it's so good to see you. Tell me what, what's happening in your life right now or yeah. who's, your, you know, who's your favorite friend or what's happening at school? What's your favorite book? Yeah. Anything that, that focuses on other aspects of being human besides appearance. Yeah, and what you're kind of referencing there, you talk about it a lot in the book, is this idea of like the whole self, right? And you yeah. even said it's not that we're discarding ideals of beauty or anything like that, like, hey, your appearance is not part of you at all, right? Which I think is kind of one extreme. Hey, it doesn't matter at all what you look like, not in terms of value, but like, hey, we're just going to ignore that entirely. Yeah, yeah. But kind of this idea of the the whole self. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, and encouraging people to see themselves as a whole self by reminding them that we see them as a whole self. Yeah. Hey, Sam Altus here, host of A Better Story Podcast. If you've had a hard time finding space in church, but you just can't shake that part of you that really likes Jesus, this is your podcast. We explore the things in life that lead us into living with more love, justice, and wholeness, and into better stories. Sometimes we look at stories from the Bible and see where they take us when we let them be surprising and subversive. And sometimes we talk to really interesting people like Will Gaffney, Shane Claiborne, Frank Schaefer, and Lisa Sharon Harper about their lives and the things that have led them into better stories. So if you're looking for a wider, more spacious view of faith, check it out at abetterstorypodcast.com, in the Apple Podcast app, or wherever you get your podcasts. So what, I mean, you talk some later in the book about some of the connections between spirituality 
and loving ourselves, loving our bodies. Mm-hmm. And one mm-hmm. of the things you talk about, kind of identify in asking some of the the women that you talk to, is beauty as being a pointer towards God, right? Like right. the created, kind of pointing towards the Creator. Did I say that right? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, can you talk about that some? Yeah, absolutely. I think of um, some of the research that we have that shows that religion and religiosity can be a predictive factor for disordered eating and body shame, that our sense of having lots of rules to follow and feeling like we are a bad person if we don't follow those rules and that we're going to be rejected by God and by our community can leave us feeling like we have a lack of control and like we don't matter and we're only as valuable as our last choice or our last sin or whatever it is. And yet we see that spirituality can be a protective factor. So outside of religiosity and the sense of um, the importance of the rule following piece, that having a sense of connection to the divine, to a God that is bigger than us and even bigger than our rules and a God who is loving and compassionate, that that can help us feel like we have goodness in us, even when the world around us has told us that we don't. So if the world around us is telling us that our worth and our value is based on our weight and our appearance and how sexually attractive, you know, our community will find us, then if we don't look the way that we're told that we're supposed to, it can create a sense of distress or um, maybe even depression, dissatisfaction. But if we can go to another story, a story that's bigger than the cultural story, one that says, no, we're actually created beings and we have worth and value that extends beyond what our culture says, then that can be a protective factor. Hmm. So I like to think if you could imagine a little circle, if you've got a little circle and you're, you exist within the boundaries of that circle and that circle tells you what you need to do to be loved, that's great if you're inside that circle. But what happens if you find yourself on the outside of that circle? What happens if the things that you're told make you lovable don't, don't meet who you are or you can't claim those as part of your identity? Yeah. And then if you imagine drawing a much, 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 much bigger circle, Well, I think about that as being what I learned from my participants as being how they conceptualize the love of the divine, that there is this source of love that is far, far, far bigger than anything the culture says about what makes them valuable. Mm. And that that bigger circle, the love of God, the love of um, our creator, ultimately encompasses pretty much every form of human existence, every form of life, every form of... um, humanity and we can find ourselves within that sense of belonging within that sense of love even if we're not inside the smaller circle Hmm. i love that because it not only i mean obviously there's a lot to do with culture saying that you have to look a certain way to earn Mm -hmm. value but i know that for some people it's you know success financial success or it's you know what you can provide for these people or you know other other things and so to kind of step out of that and say that isn't what determines your value. There's this other thing, this, you know, the love of God or however right. people want to phrase it, I guess, but kind of opting out of those cultural ideas. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And reminding ourselves that when we opt out, we opt into something else, that we're not mm. opting out into this wilderness of not knowing and uncertainty and who am I and where do I belong? But we're opting out of something 
for something bigger and better and something ultimately that doesn't change ever. So doesn't change ever. In theory, that sounds great. (laughs) How do we either for ourselves or for the people around us? I mean, how do we help make that happen? I mean, that sounds Mm -hmm. great, but you know, in 20 minutes, you, people aren't going to be listening to this anymore. They're going to be back talking to their friends or, you know, back at their job. Mm-hmm. And that, mm-hmm. that seems tricky. At, at yeah, least. absolutely. Well, it starts by ex- cr- constructing and being with other people who have a similar construction of who God is and what God is. And if you're with people who don't have this, if you don't have a way of reinforcing that the bigger circle exists and that there is a God who is loving and kind and compassionate and ultimately way more loving than any other attribute that we could ever attribute to God, that it's really hard to feel like you can be part of that bigger circle because maybe that bigger circle doesn't exist. So engaging in a community and spiritual practices, which help you return to this knowing and this understanding and this relatedness to a loving a loving and kind and compassionate God, that sets the framework. But then Mm. the piece is to notice that you can choose to remind yourself about those things as a source of comfort. So I feel really crappy about myself today when I'm looking in the mirror. Oh man, I wish I I could do this or maybe I shouldn't even leave my house. I have some people who say they can't even leave their house because they feel so much shame about their appearance. And then to remind themselves in that moment, No, that's a story to even consciously do the deconstruction of that thought and to say, no, that's a story that I was told that fits within the smaller circle, but Mm -hmm. there's a bigger circle. And if I exist in a place of knowing that I'm loved, that there is a bigger circle that contains me, how do I behave from that place? And can I act that out and trust that by acting it out at some point, I'm going to feel it on the inside too. Hmm. So those are, there's little things that people can do individually, but I don't think that we exist in individuality. We exist in a community and in a context. And so surrounding yourself with people who, who love you and support a vision of humanness and appearance that is a lot more gracious and loving and accepting, that's important. Therapy is important. Changing the media that you engage with is important. Um, being careful about your thought life and noticing when your thought life is destructive to yourself. And then I think engaging in embodiment practices that remind us that we are so much more than just an appearance, that we are living and feeling and breathing and touching and sensing human beings can get us unstuck from seeing ourselves just as a, as an appearance. Yeah. Hey, if you want to connect with Hillary, you can find her online at hillarylmcbride.com, on Twitter at Hillary L. McBride, on Instagram at Hillary Leanna McBride, or go on Amazon. You can buy this book, Mothers, Daughters, and Body Image, Learning to Love Ourselves as We Are, or you can pre-order her new book coming out late 2018, Embodiment and Eating Disorders, Theory, Research, Prevention, and Treatment. Uh, that is probably going to be a more specific segment of the audience. That sounds like a more kind of academic, clinical, is that correct? Yeah. Yeah, it's a, it's a textbook um, and handbook. Embodiment is this really ancient concept that's really kind of making an emergence. And so we're pulling together 
all of the embodiment research and theory to make sense of what it is and how it can be a health intervention and a spiritual and philosophical pursuit as well. So uh, not a light read, but <laughs> super rich and cutting edge, cutting edge stuff in all terms right. of mental health. Yeah. Yeah. You can also listen to The Liturgists wherever you listen to podcasts. Uh, if you want to connect with me, you can find me at robert-vore.com or on social media at Robert Vore. Hillary, before we go, do you have mm-hmm. any closing words for people listening that maybe are struggling with how they see themselves mm-hmm. or are feeling stuck in that? Yeah, yeah. Just my, my heart breaks knowing that you're hurting in that way because I identify with that. That was a part of my identity that consumed my existence for so long and so I think what I want to say first is I'm sorry and that you're not alone and I hold hope for you and it doesn't have to be this way forever and there's so much more to who you are than your suffering than your appearance and those are also not things that diminish or devalue your worth as a human being if you're struggling if you're in pain that doesn't make you less lovable. And so my hope for you is that in your sense of hearing this and feeling maybe not alone, like there's hope, that you can envision an existence for yourself that is rich and full and complex and is compassionate towards yourself and towards others. So good. Hillary. thank Mm. you so much for being here and talking with us. I really enjoyed it and I hope you have a great rest of your day. Thanks so much, Robert. Take care. Thanks for listening to the CXMH podcast. Want to score some major brownie points? Leave us five stars and an honest review on iTunes. Follow us on social media at CXMH podcast and email us with questions, comments, and interview requests at CXMH podcast at gmail.com.